Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 2, Episode 1, The Yayoi Way. For many years, it was believed that an aggressive migrating people group from the Korean peninsula arrived on Japan around 300 BCE en masse and immediately violently displaced the remnant of primitive Jomon people. As I hope you learned last season, the Jomon were not some underdeveloped group of savages, but a semi-settled people with a capacity for creating beautiful works of art, conceiving of a complex spiritual realm, and practicing selection through plant husbandry, among other things. Just as the old narrative was wrong about the backwards Jomon, it was also wrong about the conquistador Yayoi. Just a quick reminder before we dive in, the Yayoi absolutely did not refer to themselves as Yayoi. The name comes from the neighborhood in Tokyo where these ancient people's artifacts were first discovered. They may have referred to themselves as Wajin, but we really don't know for sure. Archaeological evidence indicates that the first of the Yayoi people entered Kyushu sometime between 1000 and 900 BCE, although some more cautious historians still argue for 600 BCE as the inception point. If you remember the photos from the supplementary blog post from Season 1, Episode 5, you might recall that the reconstructed Jomon and Yayoi villages really don't appear drastically different. The earliest Yayoi settlers apparently built their houses right alongside the Jomon structures in northern Kyushu and, indeed, adopted many of the local existing customs in what, to the best of our ability to perceive, seems like a sort of partnership. So, who were the Yayoi people, and how did they differ from the Jomon? I'd like to take this opportunity to read a selection from the most excellent book, The Archaeology of Japan, From the Earliest Rice Farming Villages to the Rise of the State, by Dr. Koji Mizoguchi. Quote, The beginning of paddy field rice farming has traditionally been connected with an imagined substance which can be described as Japanese-ness. The understanding that there was a singular beginning implies that there was a clear-cut demarcation between the period before and after it. This preoccupation with finding the demarcation has also resulted in attempts to identify well-defined units in the material evidence, assuming that they represent the Jomon and Yayoi identities. However, as we all instinctively know, life was not, and has never been, as simple as that. End quote. In short, there is no sudden replacement of all things Jomon with all things Yayoi, but instead we see evidence of a gradual transformation which, although it includes occasional periods of drastic sudden change, was not especially invasive and was far more cooperative on the part of both peoples. What inspired the Yayoi to leave their homes on the Korean peninsula? The Yayoi spoke a language which linguists refer to as Japonic. 
This would, over time, evolve into the Japanese language known to us today. Beginning around 1000 BCE, another cultural group who spoke a different language descended from the mountainous regions in North Korea upon the fertile valleys in the south. We believe these proto Korean speakers forcefully subjugated and displaced Japonic settlements, and some of the Yayoi opted to flee to the safety of the large eastern islands, which they had been trading with for many years. The process of displacement lasted until roughly 300 BCE, which is partly why historians used to date the beginning of the Yayoi period to that time. In addition to their own ideas about spirituality and their own styles of pottery, the most important thing the Yayoi brought with them was undoubtedly rice. Wet rice agriculture has certain material benefits over hunting and gathering. The first and most obvious benefit is full bellies. Large-scale cultivation means a more reliable food source, which also provides more food. As we discussed last season, at the end of the Jomon period, the climate shifted toward cooler temperatures, which threw their environment out of the equilibrium which they had relied upon. Poor harvests, combined with changes in herd migration, meant that many of the villages and settlements were abandoned, or at the very least were reduced. It makes sense that the Jomon people living on the edge in northern Kyushu would have welcomed well-fed strangers promising to share the secret of just how they became so well-fed. This is more than just hopeful, soft-hearted supposition, however. The Jomon people crafted a particular style of stone axe whose basic broad-faced design remains consistent throughout the Jomon period. The type of stone axe preferred on the Korean peninsula had a much narrower bite. During the early years of Yayoi inclusion, we can observe a significant change in the design of their stone axes. Neither the broad face of the Jomon design, nor the narrow blade of the Koreanic, but a sort of hybrid axe emerges, which is narrower than the Jomon design, but still broader than Korea's. Why does this matter? A hybrid design indicates compromise and not replacement or subjugation. However, there were certain items which, if one looks to the Korean peninsula during the same time period, appear to be identical. These are the innovation items for which the indigenous residents of Japan had not created any relevant counterpart. Stone reaping knives made especially for cutting the stalks of rice are one such item, something for which the non-agrarian Jomon people would have previously had no use. One Jomon item that practically disappeared very soon after the adoption of agriculture was the dogu statuettes which we discussed last season. While we will probably never know the exact purpose or purposes behind those cute little clay figurines, there can be little doubt that they were involved in Jomon funeral customs, given that nearly all were found in burial sites. As the old ways of the Jomon faded in light of the better-fed methods of the Yayoi, so did the conception of life and death. As the population increased the Yayoi needed to find new ways to organize themselves. 
as the old Jomon village model did not have the expandability that they required. What arose as a result was a central village surrounded by smaller hamlets. These were not independent towns, but worked together with the central village and with one another to produce food, crafts, tools, and other supplies. Kyushu, Shikoku, and Western Honshu wholeheartedly adopted the new Yayoi model of village and hamlet organization. The east of Japan, however, seems to have struggled with increasing their population to the point where they needed such a measure. This may have been due to natural disasters, difficulty in cultivation, or any other number of factors, but eastern Japan's contemporary villages would not adopt the mega-village model of the West for a long time yet. Let's take a quick break from archaeology to discuss Japan's natural geology. Between the eastern Kanto Plain and the western parts of the country lie some rough mountains which were very difficult for ancient people to cross. Thus, the east very frequently found itself in an isolated position and had to learn to fend for itself. The east-west divide in Japan periodically exacerbated delicate political crises and gave rise to some very colorful historical figures which I, for one, am very excited to explore with you. For now, just know that the East was less successful in making functional larger communities during the first several hundred years of the Yayoi period, and that they were already beginning to develop the independent, self-reliant character which will eventually come to frustrate emperors and shoguns alike. Accounts of the Yayoi people from Chinese sources indicate that they made liberal use of tattoos, something which would seem very strange and even shameful to their descendants, so much so that the later foundation myths promoted by the Yamato court in the 600 CE would claim that the Yayoi had no tattoos. We have sufficient reason for doubting the Yamato court's official story, but that will have to wait for next season. Sometime between 300 and 200 BCE, the Yayoi began importing bronze from Korea, bronze which originally came from China. Large dotaku bells, bronze spears and halberd heads, and bronze tools spread from northern Kyushu throughout Shikoku and Honshu. Eventually, imported iron would come along, but being of a more plain appearance than the shimmering, eye-catching bronze, this useful material would be first employed solely for commoners and would not become the metal of choice for nobility for some time yet. Through these exotic physical objects, the Yayoi began to adopt various aspects of Chinese culture and modified them to fit into the existing Japanese worldview. In some cases, the bronze implements would be melted down and recast by local artisans, and there is evidence that some chieftains in the Yayoi preferred ingots and raw materials over finished products. The leaders in northern Kyushu in particular saw their influence rise because of their proximity to the China-Korea-Japan trade network, and they used this to manipulate the politics of their neighbors in an attempt to consolidate power for themselves. 
chaotic events in China and Korea in the first century CE disrupted the regular flow of goods, and with that disruption, the would-be kings in Kyushu saw their power diminish rather drastically. While it is tempting to interpret archaeological evidence to claim that the Kansai region of central Honshu began its dominant ascent during this time, more data is needed before we can reasonably infer such development. We can reasonably say, however, that Kansai began developing some interesting practices which were distinct from those of its western neighbors, and that by the end of the Yayoi period, many regions adjacent to Kansai adopted some of these practices which were clearly distinct from those of the powers of Kyushu. Throughout the final centuries before the Common Era, and in the first three centuries of the Common Era, the villages would grow and create networks with one another, which would grow to become alliances and eventually regional polities. The leaders in these villages underwent a similar change, Evidence suggests that in the early parts of the Yayoi period, village leaders were chosen based on their suitability alone. Partly because of Chinese influence, and partly because of native developments, power would eventually become inherited by birthright. Noble families would ally with other powerful noble families to form clans. Eventually, these clans would consolidate power that they had accumulated over centuries and create kingdoms. By the end of the Yayoi period, that is, around 250 CE, a more stratified society had emerged from the former loose coalition of rice farming villages throughout Kyushu, Shikoku, and western and central Honshu. Hereditary inheritance, separation of elites, and sharp differences in burial customs attest to this change, and are things we will dig into in greater detail in later episodes this season. The seeds of central power were growing and germinating in hundreds of regional baronies, practically waiting for someone to reap the harvest of political power and influence and seize control of the whole of western Japan. Next time, we'll take a closer look at how the Yayoi's political structure transformed from a relatively egalitarian structure to a strict hereditary hierarchy. Until then, thank you for listening. Please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash a history of Japan.